Welcome to the Deeper Dive Podcast, brought to you by the OC Church of Christ. The Deeper Dive Podcast is about going deeper into God's Word, learning new insight, and taking a fresh look at the verses that impact our daily lives. A pandemic, mask mandates, earthquakes, potential conflict in Russia, environmental disasters, inflation. Could these be the end times? Is that what the book of Revelation was prophesying about 2,000 years ago? What is God's message through Revelation? Today, we are starting a new episode series with Gordon Ferguson called Revelation Revealed. For decades, Gordon has been a sought-after speaker and Bible teacher. He has authored and contributed to over dozens of books. He has served as a teacher, elder, and evangelist, and is directed and taught at several international ministry training academies and has a teaching ministry website at gordonferguson.org. In this new series, Gordon examines the symbols, reveals the overarching themes, and shows how the early Christians understood the book of Revelation. Most importantly, he will help us relate to how Christians should respond to Revelation today. So get your scuba gear and let's dive deep into God's word. Here is Gordon Ferguson. Hello to my friends in Orange County. Teresa and I were blessed to live among you for two years back in 2013 and 2014. And we came to love the area very quickly and certainly came to love the church a great deal. We've made many friends there. I've made several trips back then, uh, since then rather. And it's certainly good to be able to share with you uh, a number of lessons, podcasts, we can call them, on a subject that I've studied a lot, but I feel like it's one that is very, very relevant right now. Marcel asked me to speak on the subject, and as we talked about it, we decided to call it Revelation Revealed. And that's simply the title uh, presently of a book that's gone through several revisions, but at any rate, it is a practical exposition that I wrote a number of years ago and have updated some from time to time. But I want to do a lot more than simply focus on the book of Revelation. I think we need to look at a lot of other uh, parts of the Bible using similar language and help give us a feel for what that kind of language involves. Why does God use it? What does he mean by it? Uh, we certainly right now are in a climate of high interest in what we often call the end times, uh, the end ages, the end of the world. What is going on right now? Is it near the end? Is Jesus coming soon? Many questions come to mind. But uh, at least the first two lessons in the podcast series will deal with the subject more broadly uh, before we get to the book of Revelation. Now, I'm not surprised that there's a lot of interest in the topic right now. The more unsettled our world becomes, and perhaps the more unsettled our personal life becomes, the more we want to know about all things having to do with the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. Speculation about the end times is certainly at an all-time high, but it is nothing new. It's been taking place since the church was in its earliest days. 
For example, listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2. Quote, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. End of quote. So there were a lot of things floating around, even in the early church, about the second coming, uh, showing that they certainly misunderstood that. 1 Corinthians uh, 15 deals with it as well. When we talk about the book of Revelation, the title itself comes with, from the word apocalypsis uh, in Greek, and it simply means to reveal or to uncover. But the unique thing about this unusual book is that it reveals God's message in a different way through the use of symbols in symbolic or apocalyptic language, revealing type language, but revealing through the use of symbols. Such language is common in the Old Testament. So the early Christians with a Jewish background didn't find Revelation to be such a mysterious book as we do, and certainly because they understood it, they were able to help their brothers and sisters uh, in the church with a Gentile background as the church got older. Uh, we often speak of Revelation being a mystery or mysterious and thinking we can't understand it. But the word mystery in the Bible from Musterion is the uh, uh, word uh, that actually means to make something clear that wasn't known before. It meant something that couldn't be understood with human wisdom, but was something God was now making known. If you'd read Ephesians 3, where Paul uses the word mystery a number of times and explains that God has revealed uh, the meaning of the gospel mystery through the apostles and prophets, uh, you'll gain uh, the idea that the mystery was something that couldn't be unknown, but is now being made known through his apostles and prophets. So Ephesians 3 is a great passage to study about God having something previously hidden that now he wanted to make perfectly clear. And so the idea of mystery being something that we can't possibly understand, that is not why God wrote the Bible and certainly not the New Testament, including the book of Revelation. So, no matter how puzzled we might feel coming to Revelation initially and to other apocalyptic writings, God is not trying to hide the meanings from us. He is revealing them through the use of symbols. He wants us to understand this type of language just as much as he wants us to understand any other type of language that conveys his will for our lives and his work in the world. And so let's uh, assume the best that God wants us to understand and therefore jump into our study with confidence. I want to begin by talking about apocalyptic language in the Old Testament. Uh, it was very commonly used, particularly in challenging times, 
to people going through persecution of one sort or another. And this type of language appeals more to the imagination and the emotion than to the intellect. And so it was designed to give encouragement and hope that God would deal with the enemies of his people. Most of the apocalyptic language with which the Jews were familiar was actually written during the intertestamental period, which was a time of great upheaval and persecution of the Jews. But it was also a time of renewed Jewish nationalism, beginning with the Maccabean Revolt. And you can study that out some if you would like to. It's a very intriguing time uh, of the Jewish history prior to the coming of Christ in that 400-year period between the Old Testament ending and the New Testament beginning. Uh, a few examples in the Old Testament, just to give us an idea that this was common type of language. Uh, in Isaiah 13, he's giving a prophecy against Babylon, and so we find this symbolism. See, the day of the Lord is coming a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Now, if you're not aware of how God is using that type of language, you could jump to the idea that this is the end of the world but it is not. Now, it's the end of uh, Babylon's world in some sense historically, but it is not the end of the world as we normally think of it. Uh, Isaiah goes on and speaks against the enemies of Israel with these words in chapter 34 and verse 4. He says, all the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Now, when you talk about the stars in the sky being dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll, uh, you begin to think that has to be the end of the world. Well, it certainly doesn't and isn't uh, when you study Isaiah 34 in its context. It's just what we call this apocalyptic type symbolic language. In Isaiah 19, he's quite uh, clearly talking about Egypt, but he says, quote, a prophecy against Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. And so many times in the Old Testament, you find a mention of God coming but it is not a coming like the second coming of Christ, which is going to be literally true, but it is a coming in judgment. And so many times you find that analogy or that use of symbolic language, and you certainly are going to find it in the New Testament as well. Daniel is a book that I find really helpful in showing us more about apocalyptic language because he very specifically uh, interprets it for us. So it makes it much easier. 
And he gives us uh, several different chapters that deal with this. Of course, he also gives us chapters that are just straightforward, uh, common use of language describing uh, Daniel and his three friends, uh, the lion's den, all the things that happened there, Daniel thrown into the fiery furnace, all of that. Uh, you find a number of things mentioned there that are just straightforward prose, but you also find this symbolic language and he explains it very clearly for us. Uh, many of us have studied Daniel 2 in what we call the uh, kingdom study. We learn about when the kingdom or the church was established in Acts 2, but we learn about that by going back to the book of Daniel and going through chapter 2. It's a, a very interesting setting here. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon at the time. He had this dream of a giant statue made up of different types of metal. And no one could interpret that, but Daniel was one of the wise men serving the king. He had been taken into captivity along with 10,000 others, and he and several of his friends had been raised up and selected to be wise men to serve the king. And so Daniel was the only one that could interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he was given that interpretation directly from God, of course, and he passed it on to the king. And so the king had dreamed about this giant statue with different kinds of metal making it up. And so Daniel goes on to explain that the gold head represented Babylon. And then he says, after that, another kingdom will arise. And it had a silver chest and arms that represented the next worldwide kingdom, which was the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then after that, historically, you're going to have the kingdom of Greece, and that one was represented by a bronze belly and thighs. And we'll find more about the king of Greece, the kingdom of Greece, uh, a little bit later. But then he goes on to the fourth kingdom, and that one was represented on the statue by legs of iron and feet of clay and iron mixed. And that represented the fourth uh, tremendous kingdom of Rome. And he tells us during the times of that fourth kingdom, there would be a rock cut out by human hands. It would smash and destroy the statue, the empires of men, in other words, and become a mountain which would fill the whole earth. And he makes it clear that he is talking about the kingdom of God. And so historically, from the time of Daniel on, you would naturally be looking for God's new kingdom, for this new uh, phase of a kingdom. He had an Old Testament kingdom, a physical kingdom, but he was going to establish a spiritual kingdom, which would be his ultimate kingdom. And that took place in Acts 2, and Jesus, of course, had a phase of the kingdom going in his earthly ministry, but then the new covenant came in uh, with the coming of the events of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the church was established. 
And so all of that is in Daniel 2, and many of us are familiar with it. But the point is, he takes something that you'd have a hard time figuring out and interprets it for us. Now, he's not done with it. He goes on a little later in chapter 7 and describes the same exact four kingdoms, but now he's not talking about a statue. He is talking about beasts or animals to depict the same four kingdoms. And that's important because we're going to find beasts representing aspects of Rome in the book of Revelation, which we'll explain when we get there. But at any rate, in Daniel 7, first you find a lion, and then a bear, and then a leopard, and finally just a terrifying beast without any animal designation. Uh, this beast had ten horns, but a little horn came up among them and uprooted three of the first horns. And so the vision explains the horns as kings, and that will be done in Revelation. Horns will stand for kings, uh, but of course they will be dealing with the kings of Revelation's day, uh, Daniel is de dealing with different kings because there were different kingdoms in force during that period of time and following. But we're talking about the same four kingdoms. We're talking about Babylon. We're talking about Medo-Persia. We're talking about Greece. And we finally are talking about Rome. And in Daniel 7, that really scary beast, the terrifying beast, was uh, the empire of Rome. And so what we find in Daniel 7 is that the Ancient of Days took the throne and took over the world, showing the coming of God's spiritual kingdom, just as it has happened in Daniel 2. So Daniel 7 describes the same thing in different symbolic terms, but he interprets it for us. Now, Daniel 8 covers the same ground, except he goes into different details. He get, goes into the kingdom of Greece uh, in more detail because it was during that kingdom that God's people, the Jews, that nation, was undergoing a lot of persecution by kings that were connected with the nation of Greece. And so in Daniel 8, it begins with a ram having two long horns, one longer than the other, uh, Medo-Persia. Then a goat with a prominent horn attacked and destroyed the ram. The ram was Medo-Persia. The goat was Greece at the height of Greece's power, in this case, the goat. Uh, the prominent horn was broken off and replaced by four other horns. Out of those, one uh, came another horn that persecuted the people of God in unique ways. And so what happened is when Alexander the Great died, uh, then his kingdom the Greek empire was divided into four different parts 
and those parts were taken over and governed by four generals that who had who had served under Alexander the Great. And it said out of one of those horns came the persecution of God's people in some unique ways. And that was during that intertestamental period, but it played a big part in the history of that time for the Jewish nation. And so he goes into more detail there. This time the world empires are named. Medo-Persia, as I said, then uh, the goat was Greece. The horn broken off led to the Greek kingdom being divided among uh, Alexander's four generals. And one of those was called here the master of intrigue. And he was the one who would desecrate temple worship. It would be an abomination. It would be an abomination of desolation. And that terminology is used there and it would be uh, used again in the New Testament, the abomination of desolation, except it's talking about two different historical events, just like uh, the uh, nation was uh, desecrated, the kingdom was violated in some very severe ways, such as offering a pig on the altar uh, back during that intertestamental time, uh, you had in the New Testament what is called an abomination of desolation, but that refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem by the nation of Rome in A.D. 70. So similar terminology, similar symbolic language, but used to apply to the age of Christians being persecuted rather than the Jewish people being persecuted some hundreds of years before. Uh, I will mention, since I've raised the question of Daniel, uh, I will mention that rather than trying to give you an exposition of it, I just wanted to use some of the symbolism from it and to show you that uh, it's used that way and that God here gives the interpretation of it in a number of cases. I will mention a book by John Oakes, a commentary on Daniel that he wrote a number of years ago. It is still available from Illumination Publishers, IPI. Uh, John and I are very good friends. He asked me to write the foreword for that book many years ago, which I did, and I was very excited when I read the book. John was a science teacher at the time, and I didn't expect quite the knowledge uh, that John had, the in-depth knowledge of the book of Daniel. It is a very good commentary. It is, in fact, on my shelf. It is my go-to commentary on the book of Daniel, and I certainly highly recommend it. But my point is that when we come to the book of Revelation, for the Jewish Christians, and of course the early church started with only Jews for a number of years before Cornelius and his family got converted and later many Gentiles, but you had that Jewish background of the early church and they were familiar with the Old Testament. They were familiar with a number of other writings that took place during the intertestamental period, which are not in the Bible, but they used this language, this symbolic language. 
in order to give people hope and, and to tell them in so many words that the enemy would ultimately be destroyed and their cause would be exalted. And that is the overall message of apocalyptic type language among God's people, Old Testament or New. Now, what I want to do is come to apocalyptic language in the New Testament. We'll not have time to quite get through this part today, but we will in our next podcast cover it in more detail. But outside the book of Revelation, there's not a lot of symbolic language in the New Testament, except in one particular place, and that is in the gospel accounts, you find a rather long section in chapter 24 of Matthew, and those uh, same symbols are used, meaning the same thing. It's actually parallel versions of it in both Mark and Luke. Now, I'm glad we have three accounts because we only read Matthew 24 normally and you have to remember that Matthew 24 was written to mainly a Jewish background audience. And so he's going to very freely use this highly symbolic language because uh, people with that background understood it. When you get to Mark, he's writing to more of a Roman audience, uh, and he's coming from a certain vantage point to the Roman mindset. And then you get to Luke, and he's a Gentile writer to start with, the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. And Luke not only is a Gentile, but he is very specifically writing to a Gentile audience. And so he breaks things down in much more common language than Matthew does and even Mark does. And so Matthew is very... Uh, Jewish in its apocalyptic use of language, uh, then Mark is less so and less in detail also because Mark is a short book. It was written for that Roman mindset of action. And so it says immediately this and immediately that and immediately this uh, many, many times in Mark because he's moving fast He's dealing with people, <laughs> I think a lot like we have today, people with short attention spans when it comes to reading. And so he went rather fast through his short book. Luke is a much longer book and more in detail, but it's written with much less of a Jewish feel and much more of a normal feel that the Gentiles would have. And so when we compare the three accounts, in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13 and Luke 21, uh, we are going to find some answers uh, to what might give us the wrong concept in Matthew 24. And so we will start, though, with Matthew 24, and I want to read quite a long section from it. Now, the setting of this is that Jesus was in the temple area with the apostles. Uh, he noticed this widow who gave the last two coins that she had. And he called attention to her and said, she has outgiven them all. 
because she gave her very last bit of money, whereas all the rich people were giving out of their riches, and they had plenty left after they gave. And he says she has outgiven them all. She made a true sacrifice, in other words, uh, whereas they just gave an offering. And so let's pick up in Matthew 24. It says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him and called his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things he said? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The old version says the end of the world. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pangs. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Now, most of you think this is talking about the end of the world, the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. Now, let's go back to the context. Jesus has just praised this woman who gave the last of the money that she had. He was praising her. And all the rich folks were there giving their money as well, and they gave much more money in actuality, although they didn't make near the sacrifice that she did. Well, the disciples were a little disturbed by the comparison. And so they showed Jesus the buildings. Look at this temple, how majestic it is. Lord, you've got to realize this was built by rich people not poor widows. This was built by rich people that gave a lot of money. In other words, they were basically uh, chastising Jesus for putting down the rich people because in their mind, they owed the existence of the temple to the rich folks. Jesus said, yeah, you're impressed with all these things, but he said, there's not going to be one stone left. It's all going to be torn down. And so the things that men delight in, it's going to be torn down. And so they say, well, wait a minute. When will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Or as the King James says, I think, the end of the world. 
Now, when you read that, unless you've studied this type of language, and especially unless you have studied both Mark's account and Luke's account, you will come to the conclusion that it is the second coming of Christ. And then when we get into some of the other symbolic language down toward the end of the chapter, or at least further into the chapter, uh, you will definitely think that. And so let's pick up where we left off in verse 15. He says, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on a Sabbath, for there will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would, sur for, uh, would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform these uh, great miracles and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out or here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east is visible even in the west so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That reminds us of the uh, phrases that we saw in Isaiah, talking about the downfall of nations of that day. Then he says in verse 30, will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, that's pretty confusing, right? If you haven't studied it, it's pretty confusing because you start off with Jesus or them asking Jesus about his coming and the end of the age. So you think that's the end of the world. And then he goes on down and talks about the gospel being preached and all of the things that are going to take place. He talks about the abomination of desolation and goes back to Daniel for that terminology. And then he says, don't let anyone go into the house to collect anything. 
he, he talks about taking a flight, and that's not a plane flight, obviously, but uh, taking flight out of Jerusalem. And he says, pray it won't be on the winter uh, time or in the winter time or on a Sabbath day. And so he talks about all of this occurring, but then uh, he adds in the stars falling from the sky and the heavenly body shaken and all of that and the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then he uses terminology that does sound like the end of time. But certain parts of this can't be the end of time. I mean, when Jesus comes, nobody's going to run back into the house to grab, it, grab his cloak. There's not going to be any flight uh, out of Jerusalem. So whatever he's talking about here, he is not talking about the end of the world as we know of it. Even the question of the apostles, uh, what about the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They didn't even think at that point that Jesus was going to die. When he talked about dying and being resurrected from the dead, they had not a clue of what he was talking about. They didn't have the concept that they later would have about the second coming of Christ and the end of the world as we actually know it will occur literally. Uh, they couldn't have been asking a question about that. They had very little understanding of even Jesus' death and resurrection. And the idea of uh, uh, taking flight out of Jerusalem and praying it wouldn't be in the winter or on a Sabbath day, that couldn't refer to the second coming of Christ. When that happens, it's done. I mean, uh, the rest of the passage that deal with that very directly make it clear that that is done. And so this is just symbolic language. So what is he talking about? When he talks about the coming of Christ and the end of the age, what is he talking about? He's talking about the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in AD 70. That's what he's talking about. The entire section that we have read, in spite of the questions that we misunderstand, they were asking about simply when is this temple going to be destroyed and one stone not left on the other? That's what Jesus just got through saying. And so all he is talking about is the end of the Jewish age, which is marked by the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. That was the final last straw ending the old covenant, the Jewish age. But he says in verse 34, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened, all of them. And he spoke this in about AD 30. The destruction of Jerusalem happened a generation away, 40 years away in AD 70 at the hands of the Roman army. And in our next podcast, we will get into the other accounts. We will get into Mark's account and then Luke's account, and we'll even add another section that covers the same exact de uh, description uh, in Luke 17. And I think it will be clear by the end of this 
that we are not talking about the end of the world as we know it and as other passages like 1 Corinthians 15 describe it. Uh, we are talking about the end of the Jewish age and Jesus coming in judgment against Jerusalem and destroying the temple and all of that through the hands of the Roman army. And so we will deal with this more in detail. Hopefully we have gotten your appetite whetted to deal in uh, this, uh, dig into this rather more deeply. Uh, I have an article on my website that I'll refer to that deals with Matthew 24 and the parallels, but I think it's important for us to understand that even in the New Testament prior to Revelation, we have some apocalyptic or symbolic language. And if we can get some help with that, then when we approach Revelation, it will be a lot less mysterious and we'll have some preparation for what is to come there. So let's end podcast one here and we will be back next week with podcast number two and deal with Mark and Luke, and we will understand from them much better what Matthew 24 is actually saying. So God bless you. I'll sign off now. We'll talk more next week. Thank you, Gordon, and thanks for listening to Deeper Dive by the OC Church of Christ. To conclude our Revelation Revealed series, we will have a Q&A with Gordon about the book of Revelation. If you would like to submit your question, please email us at occhurchofchrist at gmail.com or message us on social media. If you want to get connected to us or want to donate to the program, go to our website, occhurchofchrist.com or through social media at the OC Church. Join us next time for our next Deeper Dive.